0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. I'm so glad to... uh... So glad to be here today. I love Harvest Bible Chapel Oakville. This was really the the first church home that Lince and I uh, ever had, and uh, we still consider this our home away from home. This church, its elders, its pastor have been such a blessing to, to me, to my family, and to our church family, and we're so Grateful to have the opportunity uh, to be here uh, today. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 32. I'll meet you there uh, in uh, a minute. I've made it a, a goal of mine to preach uh, every Psalm in my lifetime. About five or six years ago, I started with Psalm one, and then the week after that, I did Psalm two. And uh, every summer, I, I preach about five or six Psalms sequentially uh, in the Book of Psalms. And now I'm somewhere in the uh, in the mid uh, 30s, and so I'm about 20 percent done. And i uh, not looking. Too to, uh, to quit anytime soon. So Psalm 32 is where we're going to be uh, today. I want to begin by asking you a question. Are you a good person? I mean, if you were to stop someone at a Canada Day festival this weekend, maybe someone walking along Lakeshore Road in, um, uh, in Oakville or Brand Street on Burlington or uh, some trendy part of Hamilton, Lock Street or something like that, and ask them, are you a are you a good person? Uh, chances are they'd say they'd say yes without a doubt uh, of, of course i'm a of course I'm a good person and, and and even in the question there is this 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 assumption that there is sort of this binary there is this distinction that there are there are good people and there are in fact bad people and uh, we we we, we sometimes talk as though everyone's good, it's just that we're all different and we're unique. But then when we look through history and we learn about things, people like Hitler or Stalin, or even we, we read on the news about groups like ISIS or individuals like Boko Haram, and we're uncomfortable with saying, well, those people are just different, they're just unique. We have to categorize some people as bad, but we're quite certain, aren't we, that we're good. But the question that we don't often ask ourselves is, How do we tell the difference? And where where do we actually draw the line between being a bad person and being a good person? I mean, when it comes to our jobs, it's kind of easy, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if you're a good accountant, then uh, you, you can do math and you pay attention to details. Uh, if you're a good bus driver, you get places on time without running people over. It, it's, it's pretty straightforward to determine, uh, you know, if you're, doing, if you're good at your job or bad at your job. But we live in this world in which people believe there are good people and bad people, but honestly, the vast majority of people assume that they're good. And the question that would keep me up at night is, where is the line? How bad do I have to be to be considered bad? And how good do I have to be to be considered good? I mean, everyone's so comfortable and confident with the fact that they're good, but there's no, they have no categories for understanding what a good person actually is. Now, as we get into Psalm 32 today, what we're going to find, Psalm 32 is going to tell us really what the whole Bible tells us. It tells us simultaneously at the same time, it tells us some bad news and it tells us some good news. The bad news is is that you're not a good person, that there are no good people, that we're all in fact bad people. That's the bad news, but the good news is, is that forgiveness is offered to those who are willing to admit that they are bad people. And that is, the message of the, that is the message of Psalm 32, that is the message of the Bible. Listen, that the most important thing about you is not that you're a good person, but that you're a forgiven person. And so let's bow our heads and pray as we get into uh, God's word today. So Heavenly Father, I'm so glad to be here today. God, I'm so thankful to be one forgiven person who has experienced so, so, powerfully your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and to be able to have the privilege, Lord, to share it right now the message of your forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us right now. I pray that you would open up our ears, Lord, and our hearts to be able to hear and receive your word, God. I pray that as I speak, it would not merely be my voice that is heard, God, but that we would hear your word speaking to our hearts. And so we pray, God, that your spirit would move. I pray for strength and weakness. I pray for power. I pray for clarity. Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do in this moment. We love you and thank you. We trust in your promises, Lord, that you will be faithful to to have your word accomplish its purpose today. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at five character traits of a forgiven person. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. So point one is going to be a quite long, almost half the message is just going to be spent unpacking these first two verses in Psalm 32, and then the rest will come quite quickly. At the beginning of the psalm, it says it's a it's a mass skill of... Uh, David. A mascal is, a, is a, a, a musical term most likely. So the, the kind of song or the tempo or the volume that was supposed to accompany these lyrics. It's a, it's a psalm of David. It says in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Our first character trait of a forgiven person is the first word in this psalm. Forgiven people are blessed. Forgiven people are blessed. A blessing in the Bible refers to uh, experiencing favor, experiencing goodness. To be blessed is to live the good life. Now, if you were to stop those same people on Lakeshore Road in Oakville or, or Brand Street in Burlington or Lock Street in Hamilton and you were to ask them, what would you need in order to be living the good life? What kind of answers would we get? We would get answers like, well, I just need a little bit more money. I need a little bit more leisure time. I need some more stability or fulfillment in my relationships. Then I would have the good life. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible says the way to live the good life, the way to experience a blessed life is in fact simply to know what it means to be forgiven. The greatest thing that could happen to you is for you to know and understand the power of God's forgiveness. Forgiveness. So in order to understand what it means to live the good life, you need to understand what it means to be forgiven. But in order to understand what it means to be forgiven, you need to understand why we need to be forgiven. It says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no So here in verses one and verse two, we have three words used to to describe why we need forgiveness. Three words that help us define sin. They're gonna be here on the screen. The first one is sin. The second one is transgression. And the third one is iniquity. And so what's important for us, if we're gonna understand why forgiveness is so important, we need to understand what these three terms mean. The first one is sin. To sin simply means To miss the mark. I mean, if you've ever played golf, darts, uh, curling, or or crokinole, you understand the idea of having a target that you're trying to reach, and sometimes you try to get it, but you don't always hit the bullseye, do you? I mean, not every shot in golf is a hole in one, And, and anything that's short of a hole in one, and Anytime that we miss the target, that is, that is what sin is. And so to, to help you sort of hammer this home, I want you to actually give your own illustration for this. I want you to take your hand right now and reach it as close to the ceiling as you possibly can. Everyone do it. All right? So we are reaching for the ceiling. The ceiling is the target. God's perfect standard is up there. And all of us are reaching, but can anyone, anyone get there? No, that is a picture of sin. We cannot attain to God's holiness, to his perfection, to his code of ethics. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the word sin means. The the second word is, is, is transgression. Now, transgression helps us understand sin on a deeper level. You see, it's not just some arbitrary code of ethics that we fail to hit the target. Transgression involves relationship. And so take that same hand that you're reaching for the ceiling, now what I want you to do is make a fist and shake it towards that ceiling. You see, transgression is a sign of rebellion. Or you could use your imagination, another gesture that you might be pointing towards heaven. That's what transgression means. It is intentionally offending another party. You see, it's not just that so often sometimes, even in church, we talk about sin as though, you know, we really want to be good. We really want to honor God, but, you know, we just fall short. No, the truth is, the truth is, is, that, is that we're actually hostile to God. We actually shake our fist at Him. We're actually living in rebellion towards him. Saying, like, I don't want to do it your way. Adam and Eve, that was there. That, that we're no different from them. God said, you can eat from any tree you want except that tree. And Adam and Eve were like, we want to be like you. We want to be in charge. We want to be like God. And so it's, it's a rebellion inside of each and every one of us. And then the third word, the word iniquity, take that same hand, lay it out flat right in front of you. I want you to picture that there's a, a, a pure white, eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. And it's, it's brand new, and the corners are, 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 are completely sharp, and, and everything's. And then, then you take that piece of paper and you crumple it up in your hands. That's, that's a, a picture of what iniquity is. Iniquity is a distortion. Iniquity is to take something that is good. And to pervert it, to take something in its pure and proper state and, and, and to pollute it. And that's what we do, don't we? We take the good things that God has given us. Like like the blessing of, of working hard for a living can get distorted into, into greed and workaholism. The, the blessing of, of God's gift of sexuality for one man and one woman in, in one marriage for one lifetime gets perverted and distorted in all kinds of different directions, doesn't it? And so, it's important for us to understand that as we're talking about sin, notice that you, you can't talk about sin unless you talk about God. You can't talk about missing the mark unless we talk about the God who has set the bar. You can't talk about rebellion, transgression, unless you recognize that there is a God who is the king. You can't talk about perversion and iniquity and distorting what's good unless you recognize that there is a good God that has given those good gifts. You see, you'll never know what it means to be forgiven unless you know what it means to sin, and you'll never know what it means to sin unless you believe and recognize and understand that there is a God. Some of you might be saying, well, listen, I still think I'm a good person, and I, I don't necessarily really believe in God, and what, there's all these different world religions, and how can I choose? What, so I'm just sort of, I'm sort of agnostic, or I'm an atheist, I, I don't believe in God. I, I'm a good person, but I would, I, again, I would challenge you, what, what criteria are you using to determine that you're a good person? How are you drawing the line? Imagine person one is standing over here, and person two is standing over here. Person one walks up to person two and goes, whack! Person two says, ow! Don't do that. Why? Because it hurts. Why is it wrong to hurt people? Because it's just wrong. That's not a good reason. Whack! That's, that, that's the code of ethics that our, that our society is living under right now. There is, there is no reason, there is no rationale, there, there is no foundation for why anyone should tell anyone that something they're doing is wrong. You see, if, if you have a, a Christian in the picture, you have whack, you know, you shouldn't do that. I'm a creature made in the image of God, and you're a creature made in the image of God. And God has laid out a holy standard for all of us to love our neighbor. And that was not loving of you to hit me, and it would not be loving of me to remain silent while you harmed one of God's image bearers as you're an image bearer yourself. God is going to judge you for the way that you are behaving, and in order for me to love you, I need to warn you that you have sinned, that you have committed a transgression, and, and iniquity. You see, that, that, is, that, is where, that is where ethics comes from. That, that is where our morality is rooted. It is rooted in God. And, and we, our nation, just celebrated, just celebrated 150 years. And really from, from the days that our nation was established, the, the code of ethics, the, the laws of our land were anchored in the reality that there is a God. Listen, not perfectly, but, but that, was the, that was the foundation. And, and, and belief in God was like an anchor, and we were, ch- as a society, we were chained to it. So our society is like a boat, and the boat is chained to this anchor, the, the rock-solid foundation that there is a God. And What we have done really in the last, maybe the last 50 years, the last 20 or 10 years, as we've started uh, sawing off the chain, saying, you know, we don't need this anchor anymore. We want to move the boat just a little bit over this way, and the anchor is restricting us. We want to legalize this or allow that, and so we need to saw away the anchor. And what we're seeing is the boat, yeah, sure, it moved a little bit, but now there's no anchor. And now the boat is just going according to every wind of personal preference and no one can tell anyone that they're doing anything wrong. And and it's just starting to float away, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying, listen, if you're here today and you're an atheist, I don't want to offend you. I'm not saying that, that every person who doesn't believe in God is somehow a horribly immoral person and thinks it's okay to murder. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that without a belief in God, you actually have no, you, you could argue as much as you want, you can intimidate, you can, you, you can try to create rules and legislate things to try to get people to be good and, and to do the right thing, but you actually have no foundation. You will, as you're trying to tell people to do something or to not do something, you will find yourself in an infinite echo chamber of the question, Why? Why? And that infinite echo chamber can only be filled with an infinite God. He is the anchor. Ultimately, the difference between right and wrong has everything to do with our relationship with God. Falling short of his standard, rebelling against him, and perverting the good things that he has given to us. And so, forgiven people are blessed, so we've defined sin. There's three terms for sin in those first two verses, but there's also three terms for forgiveness. And I'll show them here on the screen, they're in verses one and two. The first word is forgiven, the second word is covered, and the third word is not counted. Uh, to, to, To forgive, the etymology behind the word forgiven means to lift something off of someone and carry it away. You see, our, our sin is like a burden that weighs us down, and what God wants to do is lift it up off of us and carry it away. This is pictured in the book of Leviticus in the Feast of Atonement where you had a scapegoat where the, the, uh, uh, symbolically the sins were placed on an animal, and, and the animal is now carrying away. That animal ran off into the wilderness. God wants to take our sin and carry it away. The next word is a covered. Uh, that, that doesn't mean simply you know, to sweep things under, under the rug. It's, it's referring to a painting right over something. It, it, it's cleaning it away. And, and this is pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices where, where a blood sacrifice would, 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 would make atonement. It would cover people's shame and guilt. And then the third one is to be not counted. You see... Uh, every uh, bad deed, every good deed goes into God's ledger. He has He has an Excel document opened up with a, with a column, and every time that we sin, a new a, a new transaction is 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 recorded. It's added, and forgiveness means that that whole column is select all and delete column. It it is it is it is forgiven. It is not counted. Now David, as he's writing this psalm, he is looking back to the law of Moses. He is looking at the priests in the tabernacle at the time and the sacrifices that they were making and the ceremonies and the festivals that were woven into the annual calendar of the Jewish people to think about and contemplate the power of forgiveness. But David was not only looking back to Moses and looking back to the the tabernacle, he was looking forward to one of his very own offspring, to the son of David, Jesus Christ. You see, because Jesus is the one who makes forgiveness possible once and for all. Uh, Jesus is the one who, who made us to be forgiven who took our sin and has carried it away how did he do that he carried his he carried his cross he carried our sin On the cross for us. He took that burden that we were carrying and He placed it on Himself and went to the cross and suffered and died the death that we deserved to die. To be forgiven has been accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's also through Jesus that our sin is covered. Jesus' blood cleanses us. It covers our shame and our guilt. It enables us to be forgiven, to have a clean slate. And Jesus' blood also made it possible for our sin not to be counted against us. This whole idea of of an accounting term and a a ledger or a, a spreadsheet and a calculation of our sin and that sin not being counted. All of that is the, is the, is the, the verbal backdrop for, for the New Testament term justification. To be justified means to be counted righteous, to have our sin column completely empty, and then to have our righteousness column completely filled. Because what happened at the cross, so often we only think about the cross as being, as being oh, uh, oh, it, there was only a, a transfer that happened in one direction, that, that on the cross, Jesus carried away our sin and he took our sin. But the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that, that in him, not only did he become sin, but that we now, by faith in him, become the righteousness of God. Our sin was placed on Jesus at the cross, but his righteousness was placed on us so that our sin is not counted against us. To show you what I mean, let me, let me turn uh, to Romans chapter 4 just really uh, quickly in your Bibles. Romans chapter 4. Uh, so much of the book of Romans is really just a painting this picture of being justified by faith. And he began in Romans 1 and 2 and 3 really to show that our need for a forgiveness, that we're all without excuse, that we've rebelled against God, even though his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, and that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he introduces this idea in chapter 4 of being justified by faith, counted righteous, not having our sins counted against us, but counted righteous in Christ. And as Paul is summing up his argument in, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, look at verse 7 and verse 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, Paul quotes here Psalm 32. When Paul is trying to find just a quick Old Testament summary of what Jesus accomplished, he goes to Psalm 32, 1 and 2. When Paul wants to define what sin is, when he wants to define what forgiveness is, he goes to Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, to highlight the, that forgiven people are blessed. So with that as our foundation, as our first point, now let's look at at. What happens in a person's life? If they experience this forgiveness, if they're willing to admit that they're a sinner and believe that Jesus died for them and commit to follow him as Lord, if they experience that forgiveness, what does that produce in a person's life? Here's the second thing. Forgiven people are honest. Forgiven people are honest. At the end of verse two there, it says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. That doesn't mean that forgiven people never lie. Uh, If you're here today and you try to tell me, I don't ever lie, then I've just caught you in a lie. No, a forgiven person is honest enough to admit that they're not always honest. A forgiven person knows the power of God's forgiveness, and, and in them there is no deceit. They're not trying to hide anything. They have confessed before God. They freely admit that they are sinners. I love verse three. For when, I, for when I kept silent, when I tried to hide it, when I tried to be a person of deceit, I've lived this, have you lived this? Listen to this next verse. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I might have looked fine on the, ins- on the outside, but on the inside, I was rotting. I was wasting away. I was working so hard to give this prim and proper impression that I had it all together, But when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You see, we're not supposed to hide and keep our sin inside of us. We're supposed to confess it and have it carried away, to have it covered, to have it not counted. Then verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This is the, the, the hand of discipline of God, saying just... Turn to me, confess your sin. And so God's hand was heavy upon me, and then my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And we're about to experience that right now, aren't we? We're just, we're just, we're just gearing up for summer. We know what it's like to be to be out in the garden or out at our, our kids' soccer game or or in the in the unconditioned warehouse where we might work. And And to to have our strength sapped by the heat of summer. That's what unconfessed sin does to us. We rot from the inside out. We're drained of our energy and our strength and our vitality. It destroys us. And then it says a Selah. Selah is, a, again, another musical term, maybe, uh, maybe a repetition of a chorus or a, a changing, maybe changing a key. I think it's probably a, like a face melting guitar solo, don't you? I think that's probably what, that, what that's saying. Then in verse five, again, forgiven people are honest. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover. My iniquity. Notice the repetition of the word cover. Cover is uh, in verse 1 and now cover appears here in verse 5. The only way to truly get your sin covered by God is to stop trying to cover it yourself. To be honest and to admit that you have fallen short. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Again, notice all three words. Sin Iniquity and transgression. I will acknowledge acknowledge that I rebelled against God to him. I will acknowledge that I perverted his good gifts. I would acknowledge that I've fallen short of his standard. And then I love this. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Loved ones, it's this simple. Sometimes we think that in order to truly tell show God that we're sorry, we need to, you know, do some good things to make up for the bad things that we've done, or that we need to make sure that, we, you know, we really, 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 really repent and really show that we're sorry, and then we sort of have to mope around for a couple of days, and, and, and maybe when the communion plate is passed, we think, oh, you know what, I'm not worthy yet because I need to spend some more time feeling sorry for myself and sad about my sin. No, it's, it's really as, as simple as verse 5. This is the power of the gospel. I acknowledge my sin, I did not cover my iniquity, I confess my transgression, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Heath Lambert, who is a biblical counselor and a scholar, says that when we repent, we need to, he, he, he uses the, the, the acronym CAR. He says, when you repent, you got to get into the CAR. He says, you got to confess. Confess your sin, that's, that's C. And then A, he says, you need to affirm affirm the reality maybe you need to read psalm 32 5 and affirm that you are indeed forgiven you don't need to do anything else that you have confessed your sin and placed your faith in jesus christ so affirm the forgiveness that you have first john 1 9 if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness we've got to affirm that we're forgiven we don't need to wallow around We confess it, we affirm that we're forgiven, and then are, then we repent, which is then we, whatever it takes to turn away from that, whatever it takes to make sure we don't go down that road again, oftentimes we we confess and we think that, well, I'll really be forgiven if I repent, if I really turn, if I really show that I'm sorry. But that affirmation, that understanding that God has truly forgiven us is so vitally important. So forgiven people are honest. It's so freeing sometimes just to tell people or to tell God that I'm a mess. It's so freeing to, to, to honestly talk to him about our Sin, and loved ones, this isn't just, I'm not just speaking to someone who is an unbeliever and needs to become a Christian, because yeah, when you become a Christian, you definitely need to confess your sin. But loved ones, forgiveness, that's part of the rhythm and routine of everyday Christian life. Jesus put it in the Lord's prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. It's something that we're supposed to regularly delight in and rejoice in, the fact that our sins are forgiven. So forgiven people are honest. And then forgiven people are secure. From that honesty comes uh, security. Verse verse 6 says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So I want to make this clear that that the the offer that I'm making to you isn't just a sort of, you know, take it or leave it, maybe go home and think about it. No, there's some urgency behind this. While he may be found, there's an expiry date on this offer. And, And so the psalmist here is pleading, repent of your sin, confess your sin, return to the Lord. And then it says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Uh, the rush of great waters in uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament is a picture of God's judgment. All going right back to Noah's flood to Jesus on the sermon of the mount saying build your house on the rock because when the rains come and the floods come, that's not simply referring to, you know, just trials in our life. The flood, the rain and the flood is a symbol of God's judgment. And you, you will not have security unless you're founded in the rock of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. That's what Jesus said. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're going to get swept away in the flood of judgment. And then Jesus says, build your house on The rock. Don't build it on the sand. You see, and when you know that you have been protected and preserved because of Christ's work for you on the cross, from that ultimate judgment, that ultimate trial that all of us will face, because the biggest problem in our lives has been dealt with, because we know we've been forgiven, that leads to security in every other area of our lives. You see, we we build these sandcastle kingdoms of self, and they're so fragile, they're impressive to look at from a distance, but we don't let anyone get too close. And we panic anytime the tide seems to be coming in because we know we're so hopelessly insecure because we've created this version of ourself for people to see, and sometimes we even believe it ourselves. And there's this there's this crushing insecurity when we're not dealing with our sin, when we don't know what it means to be forgiven, when we're not honest about it. That's why I love verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. We don't need to build our own kingdom. God has welcomed us into his. And we have found safety and security in him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And another selah, another interlude, another point for us to to stop and to reflect on the fact that I have been delivered from my sin. Not only that, whatever I am going through, God is surrounding me and shouting deliverance. I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to empower you. That gives us so much security, doesn't it? That's why the Christian, the truly regenerated Christian, when they're walking in the Spirit, is this beautiful blend, this synergy, this marriage between two things that normally don't go together. A regenerated, Spirit-filled Christian is simultaneously humble and confident. And those two things, only in a Christian's heart can those two things exist simultaneously. We see humility in the world and we think about just someone who's always, you know, navel gazing and they don't know how to take a compliment, and they're always saying, you know, I'm a worm and I'm worthless, and we think that. That's not true humility. And when we think about confidence, we think about people who are, you know, think they're so awesome and they're there's. <laughs> but when you understand the gospel, you are humbled because I am such a sinner that Christ had to suffer so severely on the cross for me. That's humility. But confidence. I am so loved by God that Christ suffered on the cross for me, and He rose again, and He promised, "Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And so, these two things—it's so attractive when you see it, isn't it? It's so hard even to put your finger on it. What is it about that person? It's humility and confidence. It's only—that's only possible for someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. There's that security that comes when someone who acknowledges their sin and is honest with God. Forgiven people are secure. Forthly forgiven people are wise. Verse eight and nine sort of change gears. Up until this point, it's been the psalmist talking about God. Now it's God talking to the psalmist. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will counsel you. God, listen, the power of the gospel is so great. God loves us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay there. He wants to teach us, he wants to instruct us, he wants to lead us in the way that we should go. And so in the heart of the Christian, we grow in wisdom As we learn to respond to God's word as it's read to us, we learn to respond to the prompting of the spirit as he stirs us, and it produces wisdom, which is rooted in the fear of God. Forgiven people understand the fear of God, and then therefore they're they're wise because that's the beginning of wisdom. And notice God's ultimate desire is that we live in relationship with him. Verse 9, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. God is saying, I want to walk with you. I want to lead you. I don't want to force you. I want you to be in relationship with me. I want to make you wise. And so just respond to my voice. Don't don't make me force it. That's how God wants to relate to us that our ears are open when he's speaking and that we're ready to respond in obedience. So forgiven people are wise and then lastly forgiven people are joyful. Forgiven people are joyful. Verse 10 says many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love sorry, but steadfast love surrounds the one Who trusts in the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Before we talk about joy, let's talk about the sorrows of the wicked. I've certainly experienced sorrow. I've certainly gone after some things in my life that I thought would give me pleasure, that I thought would give me joy, that I thought would give me significance and meaning, and it brought me nothing but emptiness, sorrow, regret, and despair. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. I mean, this is, this verse, verse 10, this is really my testimony. Going after things that I thought would fulfill me, but leading only to sorrow. But then it says, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Steadfast love does not surround those who dust themselves off and pull up their bootstraps and try harder to be a good person. The steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, who says, I I made this mess, I cannot do this, I cannot go on like this, God, I need to hold on to you while you pull me out of this pit. Those are the people that experience the steadfast love, not good people, not even people who are trying to be good people, but people who are forgiven, people who are trusting in the Lord. And then the goodness flows out of us in response to all that God has done. Trusting in the, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Have you been honest with God? Are you tired of being insecure? And if you have already made that decision to trust Him at one point in your life, are you trusting Him today? Or are you trusting in your own righteousness or your own checkmark Christianity or or trying to impress those around you by coming across more godly than you are? What are you trusting in? You need to be honest with Him today. Because when you do, it leads to joy. When you give up and trust in Him Something wells up inside of the human heart that that is so beautifully described in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Listen, when you understand forgiveness, when when you learn to actually walk in humble honesty and you have security and, you, and you, you have the wisdom that God gives, it leads to a life filled with joy. Let's pray that God would do that in our hearts right now. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, God, that by your Spirit, that this place would be a place filled with, Lord, with joy that comes from being forgiven, Lord, I pray that we would experience the blessing of being forgiven people. God, I pray that you would do a good work in each of our hearts to know what it means that our sins are not counted against us, that our guilt and our shame has been covered, and that our sin has been forgiven. And God, I pray that as we prepare to remember symbolically the, 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 the climactic event in, in, in which you accomplished our forgiveness, the cross of Jesus Christ, as we remember the body and the blood by taking the bread and the cup, Lord, I pray that you would be with us. I pray, Lord God, that you would, that you would be present here that you would instruct us, that you would guide us. I pray that there would be confession of sin, affirmation of your promise to forgive us, and repentance, Lord, to walk in the way that you have laid out for us. So God, we pray that you would do what only you can do in this moment, Lord. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.